Welcome to He Sang, She Sang, the show about opera from Classical New York, WQXR. I'm Marin Lazian. And I'm Julian Fleischer. And today we are talking about Bizet's Carmen. Joining us in the studio is conductor Asher Fish, who's in the midst of the run of Carmen at the Met right now. He also conducted Tristan und Isolde earlier this season, and he's principal conductor of the West Australian Symphony Orchestra. He's led orchestras and opera companies around the world, both as principal and guest conductor. Welcome, Asher. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for inviting me. So I figure we should just basically set the scene, shall we, of the story of Carmen? Let's. Um, We're in the city of Seville, the beautiful Spanish town, and in that town we find our two central characters, Carmen, the gypsy woman who works in a cigarette factory, and the soldier, Don Jose, with whom she is in love. So Carmen is beautiful. She is sensual. She's a primal dramatic character, am I right? Yeah, and she's a gypsy. Yeah. So she's got all that going for her. And she is irresistible to Don Jose, who is so obsessed with her that he renounces most of his life as he knows it in order to follow her. He gives up the military. He gives up his other love. Micaela, yeah. Micaela, and he pursues Carmen to the end, as it were. To her end, for sure. For sure. Yes. And in fact, he is also irresistible to her, which is not necessarily so usual for Carmen. She is all about free love. She takes lovers like she changes her clothes. And boasts about it in some pretty memorable songs. She does. Yes, but it's not really, to me, it's not really clear that she's in love with him. She plays with him. He's in love with her and he's mad with jealousy when when the story develops. I think she's playing with him. She doesn't show much love. She seduces him. She's attracted to him. But uh, it's very easy for her to fall in love with somebody else because she wants to prove to herself that she can get anybody, I think. And it works. It works. So as you said, Julian, Don Jose renounces his former life, but it doesn't really go that well for Carmen and Don Jose. They fight a lot. It's a very fiery, passionate relationship. And... This very dramatic scene happens at the end of the opera where the two of them are standing outside of a bullring. Inside is Escamillo, who is about to very successfully kill a bull. And outside are Don Jose and Carmen having a terrible fight, the conclusion of which is... Spoiler alert. Yeah, spoiler alert. (laughs) The conclusion of which is that he stabs her to death just shortly after the bull is also stabbed to death. So we're assuming that our audience knows how this story goes and we haven't given it away. Oh, it's a wonderful thing about opera that you can tell the end and yeah. we'll still go. We <laughs> will still go. Those who go that's keep true. going to the same opera again. I guess again. that's true. It's true of all the great works of art. You yeah. know, you just go see them over and over again. Yeah. This one especially, this is one of the top three most performed operas in all of opera history. Asher, why do you think that is? There are many, many reasons. But I think we should try to differentiate between why it was successful in the early days of its opera and why it is successful today. I think it's simpler to answer why it's successful today because uh, like I'm assuming the other operas that you're mentioning, they appeal to anybody. My four-year-old can sing four or five tunes from Carmen. Uh, People who don't go to opera necessarily on a regular basis go to see Carmen because they enjoy it. But at the same time, it's such a phenomenal work. 
And it gives the connoisseurs and people who go to opera, it gives them a lot to deal with. So the performance, the singing quality, the roles are very demanding. Carmen has been a role that defined singers throughout history. So if there's a new Carmen in town, the connoisseurs will want to go and, and hear her interpretation and how she's doing it. It talks to everybody. The more interesting question and the more difficult to answer is why it had instant success and it's been successful over the years. The success wasn't quite instant. It happened within a few months. But the very first performance of this in 1875 was a little bit of a scandal because it was unlike anything. Yes, but that considering had come that it was a scandal, the success for me was instantaneous because it only <laughs> took a few months for it to be to have right. a second role and then go all over the world. Comparing to other operas that needed, you know, a hundred years sometimes, yeah. or Mahler's symphonies, you know, forty, mm -hmm. fifty years to to get recognition, this is instantaneous success. Yeah. Of course, it was a scandal, and that's why uh, the press didn't really understand what he was doing. But it became successful very quickly, and this is, I think, remarkable. Yeah, unfortunately, not quite quickly enough for Bizet to, to ever yeah. know. Yeah. He died three months to the day after the premiere of, of Carmen, and he had not been a huge success as a composer in his in his life. He never got to see this work flourish, uh, and we never got to see or hear what he would have written. Yeah, we're only lived. lucky that in spite of his not very uh, impressive career, he was still commissioned to do this work by yeah. the Opera Comique, and that we have this masterpiece, yep. which is, uh, as you said, became one of the most important operas. It is an interesting question that they commissioned him, of all people, who seemed rather undistinguished at the time, why, why, why they would have made that choice. Maybe he was inexpensive. <laughs> he was available. They could get him as yes, yeah, a bargain rate. Probably, I'm assuming how it goes is that he, because he, the idea of doing the the story of Carmen was his idea, and maybe somebody found this a very compelling idea, and to go into this exotic, not traditional right. storyline, yeah. uh, I think that probably sparked some interest on on the side of the opera comique. Oh, interesting. And Seville was also sort of a, a go-to exotic setting for opera at this point. You'd had the Barber of Seville, and there were one or two other operas that when you wanted to capture some sense of of the exotic world, go to Spain and get some really interesting music, for instance. And It's, it's interesting that the French would think of Seville as exotic when it's just on the other side of the mountain. Yeah, but that's the whole story of the success of the opera is this... Because the biggest reason for me is that Bizet really heralds. He's at the cusp of a huge era in culture history, not mm -hmm. only music, in culture history, in the arts, but in general, of the fascination of the Europeans with the exotic. Right. They start looking early on, but it takes them 100 years to start to take different music from different countries. Right and it incorporated in the music. And it, it, it's a very, very long and slow process. And we must remember that for in, in those days, you know, they didn't have a lot of information about faraway music. This came later in, with a big exhibition in Paris in 1900, the World right. Exhibition, where they first heard gamelan music, balinese music, Japanese music. Right. And they start looking, when they expand romantic music, they're starting to look for more resources and more things that would enrich their language, the musical language, because they're stuck. They're looking for new materials. Right, new ideas. Now, what is the Spanish style? Is They didn't know much about Spanish music, uh, but they knew that the, they use a mode, which is called the, the Phrygian, Phrygian mode. Phrygian, yeah. mm -hmm. uh, which the Phrygian is, mode. The Phrygian mode. <laughs> the Phrygian mode. Phrygian Phrygian. Is, is Phrygian minor. <laughs> it's a super minor. Yeah. Uh, 
if one of our listeners wants to check it out, you go to the piano and you start on an E and you play a scale of only white keys from E to E, you get this mode. And the typical thing of the mode is that the first note mm. is not a full step, but a half step. All of these Spanish things. So they it sounds thought, a little like klezmer, if I may interject, <laughs> which, which they're related. Yes, I mean, klezmer is where, yes. you know, Yiddish and Spanish styles, inter, you know, overlap. Yeah. You get that minory minor stuff. Yeah, and but and that's they knew this was Spanish, so this is basically all that they used to to give it uh, the word in Europe. We use the word local colorit, local color. <laughs> local <laughs> colorit is a, is a great word, and what Bizet does is incredible because the the big bulk of the opera, it's not like he's doing a little bit of local color and then regular French drama. The first and the second act are really Spanish with a lot of quotations of Spanish original folk music that he found somewhere. You know, he probably asked, give me something Spanish. And and, and he looked at it and said, uh-huh, that sounds uh-huh. exotic enough. <laughs> um, but, but that's why it appealed. I think that's why it appealed, because people were looking for something different. Right. And in Carmen, you know, one of the really obvious examples of this is the very famous habanera that Carmen sings. And, you know, she is that in the Phrygian mode? Is what, does she no, have not at all. Mode? This is actually, there's a debate. People say that it's Cuban. Habanera is not Spanish. Right. It's Cuban. It was important to Spain. I don't know how he landed on this, but it sounds, again, it sounds Latin. It sounds <laughs> exotic. different. Yeah. Exotic. It's a little bit chromatic. It has those half steps. It's very um, sort of slithery and, and almost cat-like in the way that it moves musically. <laughs> It sounds different from what's come before in the opera, right? Um, You have less of that, the Spanish influence in the music until you hear Carmen sing, I believe. Well, uh, yeah, you have the overture, the prelude, uh, which is a collection of motives that later appear in the opera. They have, so it's a little bit the Spanish gusto is in there and the energy. Right right Uh, out of the gate, the first things you hear. And and this theme appears a few times and most prominently in the last act. So musically, you have the effect of this thing that just shocks you into a new world. You've heard this French, beautiful French music, and then this character comes on stage, and we're waiting for her. The men have been talking about her already. Uh, and she appears, and she brings you into a new musical world and brings you know, the men and Don Jose into a new dramatic world as well. I think well. the word you're looking for is sex. Sex. She, a, brings she, is, she is a jolt of sexuality. Yes, and in all productions, they're competing who can make her look more sexy. Mm-hmm. Uh, How are you doing? How's your production? Good. <laughs> good. Who's because playing Carmen? Clementine Marienne. Yeah. Tell us who, a little uh, bit about her. She's French. She's <laughs> a newcomer. She, this is her med debut. 
Oh, wow. Uh, she was brilliant. supposed to sing half the run, but Sophie Koch was ill and had to cancel, and she sings the whole run. She's done the role a few times before because you look at her and you say, she's Carmen. She is, she's redheaded. She's curly. She was uh, in the studio of the uh, Deutsche Oper in Berlin and worked there at the beginning, and now she's going all over, and I, I think that she will go very far. She's a fabulous singer. In fact... Why don't we go hear what Clementine has to say about singing Carmen right now? Well, I'm at the Metropolitan Opera speaking with mezzo-soprano Clementine Marguen, who is making her Metropolitan Opera debut in the role of Carmen. And in fact, Carmen has been a role debut for you at major opera houses across the world, really. Berlin, Dresden, Rome, Washington, D.C., um, Canadian Opera Company, and as I said, right now at the Met. So I think it's safe to say this is a signature role for you. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's my lucky role, and it's the the role where I can, you know, take my first steps in big opera houses. Yeah. So it's amazing because, I mean, first it's Carmen. The role is just amazing, and I mean, I couldn't have dreamt better role to start my career. What was your very first experience of this opera? Actually, I was uh, when I was a kid. Uh, um, I, I was singing in a children's choir, and it's a, it's a very small town in the south of France. They d- don't even have an opera house, but they have a theater where sometimes they do operas. And uh, I sang one of the kids in the children's chorus. So this so, opera is maybe very close to your heart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's funny because I I remember this feeling of uh, being on stage and to share this joy of being on stage with uh, my friends. And uh, actually, this didn't change, you know. <laughs> I grew up, you know, I, maybe I have more pressure, you know, to sing, but it's still, you know, that you're on stage and you share with people the, the, your passion. Yeah. So this opera, and obviously music, has been part of your life since you were a kid. Yeah. Did you grow up in a musical family? Was this was that your first experience of classical music? No. Um, my grandmother was a violinist, and in my family there's a big tradition of classical music. Not opera, classical music. We all played an instrument. So I played piano for many, many years. And yes, in, in my family, you know, the, the, the music is very important. You know, my, I, we had the chance that my parents would bring us to any concerts they could. You know, again, we lived in a small town where the, there was not much going on. But still, you know, they made a point to bring us to every concert. I remember my sister, she was a baby and she was, you know, in the, in the stroller and listening to classical music. And, uh, and my father, the first thing he would do when he would go back to home is to put classical music. So, yes, I've been surrounded by classical music, and, and I loved it, you know, as far as I remember. Yeah. So how did you become an opera singer specifically? This was a, a bit of a surprise for, for actually for my family and for, for everybody who knew me. And so I finished my studies, and I went to university to study law. I was still, you know, practicing the piano. I was not, you know, that I could play, you know, but I knew that I wouldn't be able to do it as a professional. So I started to, to take some singing lessons. While you were studying law. Yeah, exactly. And the first teacher I met, I was very lucky because I met a, a very good teacher. 
and uh, she knew what she was doing. And she told me the first lesson. She said that, oh, I don't think that you're going to study law very long. <laughs> <laughs> and I laughed because, you know, I have, you know, I, I was just starting to take lessons. So I had no ambition, you know, it's, it was just because I was curious. I loved to sing. It was natural for me. So I just, yeah, wanted to go a bit deeper in this direction. And and that's what happened, you know, two years after I went for the Conservatory uh, of Paris. I passed the exam and they, they took me. It was difficult to go on with the uh, low. <laughs> <laughs> so I stopped. Do you ever, ever look back and think, oh, I could have been a lawyer? Yeah, actually, you know, I, I loved it. Uh, and there are kind of similarities. Uh, similarities, uh, yeah, too? Yeah, 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 exactly. Like what, what do you see as being a, the, a similarity? I mean, the trial... Basically, it's like an opera, you know, it's uh, everybody has his own character. Yeah. And uh, it's, you know, the, this old fashioned thing, you know, you wear a costume, you yes. wear there's something and you have to express yourself and convince. But, you know, once I started to sing more and more, the passion like grew like crazy, you know, and I couldn't avoid it. <laughs> <laughs> it sucked you in. Yeah. But you're right. There is that performance element of yeah, law and it's sure. sort of a production yeah. It's interesting. Sure. Um, so to talk about Carmen a little bit, there are as many depictions of this character as there are mezzo-sopranos who sing the role of Carmen. Mm. Who is your Carmen? Who is Carmen to you? What guides her and motivates her? Yeah, the, the, there's a different Carmen uh, with every different singers because you have to play with your own femininity, you know. Yeah, with your femininity. Yeah, yeah with your own sensuality. That's something you cannot fake right you know it's uh, you have to do it with your body and how you would seduce a man in real life you know i mean th that you have to bring a lot of yourself you do. to play carmen and that's why you know one will love carmen and the other one will hate her it's impossible to please everyone because it's impossible to seduce everyone right. you know everyone has a different idea of What's sensuality? You know, what's uh, what's sexy? Yeah, you're right. It's very intimate and personal. Mm. What's sexy to people? How do you prepare to go on and sing? What is this very sensual role? This very physical role? What puts you in the mindset for a performance of Carmen? Actually, the dance, the dance, the flamenco. I think that flamenco is the metaphor of Carmen. You know, there's everything in this dance which describes Carmen, like the, the strength, independence, it's you dance alone, mm -hmm. sensuality, it's powerful, it can be very soft. It's not only about the moves, it's more about the philosophy of the dance. Uh, I mean, sensual and free. 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 I mean, for, for me, yeah, the, the freedom of Carmen is maybe the main, the main subject in, in the opera, you know, that's everything she does. She doesn't do it for love. She does it for her freedom. Mm. And like that. that's the thing she, she will even, you know, die for it. Yeah. When I came to see this last week, I saw it with a friend of mine. And this was the first time he'd seen Carmen. And he was really struck by how complex she is, that she's so nuanced. And in some ways, it felt like a very modern and mature character in a way that not all operatic heroines are. Mm -hmm. You know, she's 
she has complicated needs and mm. desires, yeah. and she really explores them in her yeah. music. Mm. Um, and it sounds like you see her as being a, a modern sort of character as yeah. well. Yeah, exactly. And as you say, a very complex woman. I mean, like we all are. Right. Is that something that you take away with you? I mean, I think both as as a singer, you can take experiences from your real life and bring them to your character on yeah. stage. But do you find that you also take some of what you learn inside of these roles to your life off of the stage? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I hope nobody will kill me <laughs> at some point. <laughs> I hope so, too. <laughs> but... Uh, for sure. I mean, again, I think it's the problem that women nowadays we still have to combine your own desires and the desires of the society, you know, what you should do, you know. And it's true that with the life uh, I have as an opera singer, you know, I travel all the time and the singing, my passion takes almost all of me. And of course, it's difficult, you know, because you have to share it with the people you love. And uh, if you want to build a family, you know, that that's all of the things. So you, you have to give some part of it. Yeah. And Carmen doesn't want to give anything. <laughs> she will live exactly as she wants. And she, she, she's asking the man to follow her. Right. You know, in her path. Yep. And not the, the opposite. It's very powerful. Yeah. So having performed this role all over the world, do you find that audiences in different countries and different cities respond to it differently, respond to her differently? Yeah, yeah. As it's an opera comique, which ends in a very tragical way, there's, right. there's both. There's the sense of humor, there's the, 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 the lighter part, and then there's the drama. And I noticed that in America, you, you, they respond very well to the comic part which is maybe not the case in, in Europe. You know, they, they, they don't find it so funny. It's interesting. <laughs> yeah. I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but that's what I noticed. That's what you feel <laughs> yeah. on stage. Yeah. Do you think that the fact that it combines comic elements and a very dramatic, tragic element, do you think that's all part of why this opera is so loved by people? What do you think it is? Oh, I think it's a combination of everything. I think it's a genius part. It's a, the score is genius. And every time I, I sang a lot, Carmen, and every time I'm amazed by, you know, he managed to write like a very popular opera with songs, very easy to listen to. Mm -hmm. You can remember the melodies, but though not simple at all, it's very well written and very in a very smart way. You know, it's not like he wrote it like this and it, it's a simple melody. No. No, it's a genius work. And, yeah, this is, uh, this is amazing. And there's not one moment in this opera where it's not a hit, big hit, you know. The, the, there's not one single moment where it's boring. No, it's true. This, this opera has hit after hit yeah. after hit. I mean, it's not, you know, give me another opera like this, you know. It's, it's just, it's genius. Have you worked with her before? No, no. Can I ask you to tell me, and if this is a, a question you want to hear, I, I'm curious about what it's like to approach a role like this with a person you've never done it with before. You're the maestro. She's the mezzo. Who gets to decide how these things will go? It's can a very good question. <laughs> so I can tell you now by example of what happened because we had two Carmens, one 
who was going to sing the role for the first time mm-hmm. and one who sang it many times before. And the difference is right there for me in the work. Because if you have a singer who comes and did not do it before with a hundred different conductors, then you have much more chances of actually shaping the role together right. with the with the singer. On the other hand, if you have somebody who has sung it before and who is very good at it, you don't want to impose what the way you hear the role. But I think if you're a real theater conductor and you want to produce something together with your cast, then you it's a give and take. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of compromise and psychology and give and take going on. And the, that, those compromises, I take it, are happening at the moment yes. that you're performing it. Yes. And you're communicating with her through your baton, through your face, through your arms, through the orchestra. Yes. So if, if something is going exactly how I'm expecting it to go, I will be very relaxed and I will conduct more of the orchestra and let them go. And if I see that it's veering in a direction that I don't like, I will make sure that they understand that I'm trying to convey, to give some information. Come right. on, move. Don't get stuck. <laughs> It's famously difficult, is it not? I mean, uh, opera conducting, I would assume, is one of the most difficult jobs on the planet. There are tricks of how to do it. Like, ooh, give us a trick. Well, what I mentioned before is a very basic trick. If if it goes well, you don't conduct too much because then when you want something, it, right. it will be like crying wolf, you know? Exactly. I see. Yes. <laughs> do you have an example of a time that you've been conducting a live performance of anything, not necessarily Carmen, but that it's just gone horribly wrong and you've really had to fight to get it back on track? Yes, well, I remember many such times. And in most <laughs> times, I'm very proud of the fact that I could get it together. Mm-hmm. Uh, but twice in my in my life, I had to stop and start again. Really? Yes. Really? Yes. It wasn't my fault, I think. <laughs> <laughs> we believe you. Uh, no, I had once in Vienna a flautist who had never, believe it or not, who had never played Norma. And he came in to play a performance and he... Casta Diva, which is like the the number from Bel Canto. Yes. Mm-hmm. He didn't know it. And I'm condu- I'm giving the upbeat, and then he, instead of playing tam pam pam pim pam, he then ta da 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 da. He played with a double tempo. <laughs> he didn't know. And this is something I couldn't save. I think that I'm a conductor who who could save because I've done tons of performances in the early days in Vienna, in Munich, in Berlin without rehearsals. So mm-hmm. you have to things go wrong. And I see it as a wonderful thing. Many conductors don't want to do that because they think it's, you know, it's not about making music. But I see it as a challenge. I think it's fascinating to try to save things just with your hands. But this one I couldn't save. <laughs> well, obviously, if someone comes in at double tempo, you're, you're stopping at the beginning. It's not like you got halfway through and had to start again. <laughs> no, I knew that if I don't stop him after two bars, I'm right. in big trouble. Right. So Yes, that's one of the major roles of a conductor, right? I mean, there's all of the preparation in the world with the orchestra, with the singers, a ton. But then once you're in performance, making everything go okay. Actually, this would be interesting maybe uh, to tell that in Bizet's time, the conductor did not stand where where we stand today. Really? They stood at the end of the pit where the prompter's box is now, in the pit, but looking at the stage. And the orchestra sat in the pit, but they were turned around looking at the conductor's back. So he would conduct the singers, the orchestra would watch him from the back and uh, follow. So would the conductor be in between the orchestra and the singers? Exactly. Wow. Really? Yes. 
That's crazy. <laughs> and was that just so that the there would be more and closer contact between conductor and, and I the think stage? I don't I don't know how it developed to be like this, but it made total sense that the singers <laughs> need to see the conductor and the conductor needs to be close to the singers. Have you ever tried there's doing a famous, that? There's a famous Renoir painting of an orchestra, and I in, in you can see that situation looking at, there. Looking at his butt. Looking at his butt. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's where the tail comes from. Uh, Maybe it is. Perhaps it yeah, is. Yeah, to yes. cover the butt. Make, well, it a, make it a little less immodest. Let's leave it up to our listeners to f- to find out for us whether that's the derivation of tales. Yes, please let conductor. us know. This week on He Sang, She Sang, we're speaking about Bizet's Carmen, and with us is conductor Asher Fish. Asher, I'm wondering if you have a favorite moment musically in Carmen. Yeah, obviously I have a few. All right, but we'll they're go not for they're not what you would expect or what the listeners Even would expect. Better. So as a conductor, of course, the final duet is just such a masterpiece. Tell us a little bit about what's happening musically and dramatically in that duet. So the whole opera is like a vice turning. It starts very relaxed and very happy, and it takes a very long time for things to get hairy. The first and the second act are mostly happy, I would say, in quotation. Mm. <laughs> and then in the third act, there's a transition which comes with the cards, Arya by Carmen, where she sees the cards and she knows that she's going to die. And then Michaela with her sad story. So it gets a little more dramatic. And then the beginning of the fourth act is, again, the crowds just before the bullfight. It's it's phenomenal writing. And some of my favorite moments are actually with the chorus in the beginning of the fourth act. Mm. But then when they all leave and go into the arena and we have only Don Jose, as we call him today, <laughs> and, and Carmen, and then the most dramatic on the level of Verdi and, and Puccini and Gounod, it's just phenomenal writing. I think when he kills her, this is you will you will like that. <laughs> so, Julian, <laughs> I guess he's already figured something uh, about me out. But <laughs> what is? It's very typical of thriller movies from the early days of movies uh-huh. that you have a death scene, and in the background you hear the carousel music going. Yeah, that's such a, a cliche almost. Sure. One of the first time this is seen anywhere is in the fourth act of, of Carmen. He's killing her on stage. We hear the crowd singing triumphantly for, for the killing of the right. bull inside the arena. And the orchestra is playing some chromatic, sad music. In the, so it's the, the juxtaposition, which would be the word for that, yeah. that is happening, is giving it so much meaning than had it just been dramatic music and Jose stabbing yeah. Carmen. Yeah. <laughs> 
We talked about this earlier today before you arrived about how the comic structure underneath the tragic story really highlights just the pathos of it. Yeah, and in at a the way end that they Shakespeare meet. At the right, right moment, they meet. And right. this is right. so genius from, from Bizet. And everybody has been doing it since. It's, it's, and it also shows you another layer music can give you to theater. How, yes. Where is the advantage of an opera to theater? You can have something going on on stage, but just by sounds from backstage, the music, you create a much deeper scene. More shocking. More shocking and with more layers. It's yeah. it, it um, it's almost like your eyes and your ears don't agree. Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah, and that puts the drama of it into stark relief somehow yeah. when you've got that tension right. between what you're hearing and what you're seeing. Yeah. Another moment I love, I love the prelude to the third act. I think that's such a gem of, uh, and actually the one of the only places I have, I actually have shivers in uh, goosebumps in Carmen, which is not a goosebumpy opera, most of it. <laughs> Is it this prelude? What is it about the the prelude that you really love? I don't know. I go out there. It starts with a flute and a harp. And I go out there and I don't conduct the beginning. And I got some crazy looks from orchestras where I did this before. (laughs) In Vienna, I remember they said, "Uh uh-huh, he's not conducting. Okay, let's continue. Because I just can't conduct it. I think two people making music together, what, am I going to beat the four and Mm -hmm. show them how it goes? And I think think that I get... beautiful playing just by not conducting and then when the strings come in and it's only a quartet and the clarinet I conduct a little bit and then it blooms from there and it's simple but it's so beautiful just a a duet between clarinet and flute and the harp is giving the background and then the hushed strings are coming in and then taking over Small, unimportant in the opera, but spot on. So, so beautiful. Well, you were saying earlier that there's there's stuff in this opera for the connoisseur, you know, as well as for the, the person who just wants to hear a good song, and perhaps that's what you're referring to. That's one of the examples. A yeah. little detail. But what, what excites me about listening to you talk about this opera, if I may be so bold, is I guess I would have forgiven you if you were a little bit over it because it's Carmen. You know, it's perhaps the greatest cliche in the world of opera and yet you talk about it with such passion and so much excitement and you and you Oh it's such a great score and it never tires you you never have enough of it it's really a great score and if you will see this is uh, one opera that all conductors wanted to conduct so you know even my mentor Daniel Barnborn you know you would not expect him to enjoy Carmen but of course it has a little bit to do with the fact that Nietzsche announced that mm-hmm. Carmen was a great opera <laughs> uh, but Everybody, because it is such a f- an important and phenomenal score. Everything you're saying is fascinating. You're actually making me really want to go see Carmen. <laughs> <laughs> then we won. We did the right thing. The plan worked. You know, it's funny. We were talking earlier about what is it about opera that that sometimes leaves people cold. You know, uh, there's people in the world I know who love theater. They love musicals. They love orchestral music. But they don't love opera. And... It's a 
I, I, you must know what I'm talking about. I know what you're talking and about. And I'm wondering if you can address that. Again, it's a big topic, but I can give you a, a, a specific example from Carmen. Okay. So one of the biggest questions when you when you mount a production of Carmen is to decide if you're going to do the recitatives or you do the original version of spoken spoken dialogue. Now, disclaimer, I'm a person who I don't go for original just for the sake of originality because it's the first one. I couldn't care less. I always go for what works. And I think that people don't like opera because they find themselves in situations where people are singing funnily what should be mundane information things, you know, instru instructions, right. and they're singing them. And I think if people, for example, if they go to see a production of Carmen and they see this the, the, the version with the dialogues, then I think they'll be able to relate to it because it's a mixture. The music serves a purpose, but basically they will feel that they're in the theater. I mean, my, ex my experience, because I'm not, I'm ashamed to admit in this context that I'm not a great opera fan, not that I haven't loved some operas, but I don't think of it. It doesn't tug at me the way orchestral music does or just classical music straight up. I often feel like I'm waiting for the good parts. <laughs> when a great composer composes a symphony, there are no recitatives. You know, there's no point in the symphony, in a Mozart symphony, for example, where you're waiting to get to the good part. Whereas in opera, there's these recitative sections where people are, as you said, sort of singing funnily about stuff that doesn't really deserve But not in all opera. Then you should go see something like Turandot. I think this is one example. If people ask me, what's the first opera I should see? Yeah. One of my favorites uh, is, is Turandot because I think anybody can go in and just the music is so there and not disturbing. It's so beautiful and the story is so good and uh, still they get uh, highlights. You know, there is Nessun Dorma. Right, right. Uh, but they get a kid's chorus and the chorus and this little bit of Chinese music and a little bit of, of um, uh, Persian music and it's just all there and it's an, it's entertainment pure even if you don't like classical music in the theater. Mm -hmm. Cool. It's good yeah. to know. So you see yourself as a storyteller as much as a Absolutely. music maker. director. We are all hidden directors. In Is there a director a separate from you? Is there a theater director yes. working on this with you? Worked. Prepared Worked. it. Yeah. And I like to see it like I'm doing a little bit of direction because timing is a big part of, of any theatrical moment. And you're in charge of the timing. So, And sometimes, you know, if I see that the singer is in the wrong place, I will even nod to them to move to the, to the left or the right or come closer because they forgot... The staging. You mean your state? You mean physically? Move? I've done that many times. Yeah, especially when Ooh, singers jump in, and they had very f little rehearsal time. I've had so many performances where somebody jumped in the last minute, and then they're lost on stage. You can imagine, and uh, you're the only one they look at yeah. and can get instructions from. So if if I'm aware of the production, I know what's happening, and I usually try try to be, then I will help if I can. Are you used to the pressure of being the person that everyone's looking at to know what to do, or does it ever I weigh on you? I think after the numbers of operas that I've conducted yeah. in the years, yes. Mm -hmm. What was the first opera you conducted? Bohem was my first opera. And was that a terrifying experience? Uh, you bet. <laughs> Bohem, is Bohem is difficult under any circumstances. Yeah. My first ever opera was Bohem, which is very, very difficult. And my first Wagner opera was Parsifal, which is also incredibly difficult. So... Uh, yeah. You obviously like to dive into the deep end. I do. <laughs> <laughs> and what are you looking forward to conducting that you haven't conducted? Is there anything on your list, on your bucket list, that hasn't been checked off? 
Frauenschatten. Say that again. Strauss. <laughs> Gesundheit. <A> woman. <laughs> uh, I've not done Fanchula del West, and I really need to do that, Puccini. And I've not done Peter Grimes. And these oh. three operas I need to do. And then... Then you're good. And then, then I'm good. <laughs> and then whatever happens, happens. Yes. It's time for our YouTube picks. We'll share some of our favorite videos so that you can get more familiar with Carmen. Julian, what do you have? Well, if I'm going to play the role of the true Philistine on this show, then I'm going to put forth a YouTube clip that I think will be familiar to everyone, you know, over the age of, say, 30. Uh, the favorite episode of Gilligan's Island. Do you, are you familiar with Gilligan's Island? No. <laughs> it was a very daffy American comedy on television back in the 70s about a group of people cast away on an island together. And it was unbelievably stupid and yet unbelievably beloved. It, it, it It's lodged in people's psyches all over the place. And there's an episode where a, a theater producer washes up on the island along with a box that includes uh, uh, some records and some Shakespeare. And they and so the castaways put on a little production of Carmen, but using the words of Hamlet as the lyrics. And <laughs> Gilligan famously sings, I asked to be or not to be, to the, the, the melody of the habanera and... Um, I encourage our listeners, <laughs> if only for um, for sentiment's sake, to go check out this YouTube video from Gilligan's Island. Oh, that sounds great. It just shows how universal these melodies are. Yes. Well, I brought something... Uh, a little more highbrow. <laughs> a little more traditional, <laughs> okay, we'll say. Okay, thank you. I, I've got a video of Maria Callas singing the habanera. It's funny, she never actually performed the role on stage, but she did record it in 1964, and there are a couple of videos floating around of her singing Carmen's music. And she's just so extraordinary. I mean, other than being gorgeous to watch as Carmen, as this um, Spanish gypsy, there's so much she does vocally to capture this character. She had so much expressive power with her voice. And listening to her sing the habanera, you see it all, even note to note. You hear these really sometimes subtle, sometimes really dramatic changes in the way that she uses her voice to express the words and the music. And it's just so natural, so natural to hear her sing it. You can check out both of these videos. <laughs> and now I'm pretty embarrassed about mine. On the He Sang, She Sang show page at WQXR.org. And while you're there, leave us a comment and let us know what you thought of the show. And if you did like it, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or wherever you park your podcasts. Our guest today was conductor Asher Fish. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. This was fun. It was great fun. He Sang, She Sang is a production of Classical New York WQXR. I'm Julian Fleischer. And I'm Marin Lazian. Thank you for listening.